Number three. Here we go. Good morning. It is a privilege to be with you again today. Let's pause and we'll pray as we look to God's word. Lord, we just come before you right now and we seek an honest and heartfelt revelation of your word to us in these moments. We thank you, God, for those who gathered here. And as we look to your word just now, we pray that it would speak to our hearts and to our minds and that your will would be evident and that you would have your way in this space this morning. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. Well, it is a privilege for me to be here sharing with you today from God's Word. I trust you've had a good week. Uh, hopefully the snow hasn't hijacked you too much over this past week. It is quite lovely, even as you look outside and you see the snow falling, the fresh snow on the trees. It is a lovely space. Uh, and so hopefully it hasn't been too much of a hamper for you. At Northridge here, it's been a busy week. Uh, one of my favorite times of year is, is January. I like Christmas, I love coming through and celebrating, and then I love January because it's an opportunity to really to look forward and to, to think and to plan about where we go and what we're doing and some of the things that God wants to do uh, here. And so it's been an opportunity for our leadership team to connect, for our pastoral team uh, to connect and really uh, seek to align ourselves with what God desires for us. And so you see some of that coming to fruition as we have desired and are intentionally providing opportunities to pray both corporately, together, and individually. These, those are, are sacred moments in the life of a believer uh, between them and God. And so we want to foster that. And honestly, I'm, I'm really excited about what I believe that God is calling us into in these days. And I believe that as we seek to, to focus in on what he has for us, about being prayerful people, about having missional impact, that as people who are, are empowered to go and to share the love of Christ, to meet need in his name, and to be a transforming influence, and to consider how we do that as a church, and to have impact, positive impact. I believe that, that as we seek that, that God will bless our ministry, and I believe that he will use us, that's me and you, and use our leaders more and more for his good and perfect purposes, and that we will see others come to know Christ. Amen? Anything? you got to give me something. I get you're all up early shoveling snow, but we're in this together here. All right? I am excited for what God has for us here at Northridge. I'm also excited to be able to share with you for the first time uh, from this sermon series, although I will admit the system's rigged a little bit, I think. Two weeks ago, Jacob introduced this series, and he got to talk about, you know, a bit of an overview, got to talk about the importance of the Word of God as a sacred text, as the, the divine rule of Christian faith and practice, to talk about how we came about to get the Bible, why it matters, and what we do with it. And then Carolyn last week 
got to talk about creation, speaking from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You remember how God created everything, how humanity was formed by the hand of God in his image, and how God planted a garden for them to be cared for, to be loved, to, to live in relationship with God. You know, Genesis 2 talks about God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, and we've got this wonderful relationship that, is, that exists between creator and creation. And God saw that it was good all the way along, all that he created. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 2, he looks and he says, it's all very good. And then Genesis 3 happens, where it all comes crashing down. And so, if you've got your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And this section in your Bible may be called something like the fall of man. It might be called the man and woman sin, or how sin came into the world, depending on the translation that you're reading. So as you're looking that up, and you put it before you, as the words will be on the screen too for some of the verses we'll look at, but uh, there's something special about having the Word of God in your hand, uh, so I want to empower you to do that. But we're going to linger in the garden for just a moment longer, as long as we can. <laughs> You'll recall Adam and Eve, uh, created in the image of God, now residing in the Garden of Eden in perfect harmony with creation and their creator. And the garden is filled with all sorts of things that they need to live. There's fruit that grows on the trees all year round, produces a harvest so that they can eat. There's plants, all the things that are there. And they are free to eat from any of the trees that produce fruit except one. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, we read, But the Lord God warned the man, you may eat freely of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Bit ominous, right? But for the remainder of chapter 2, Adam and Eve, they continue to live in the garden together, and as it's proclaimed, all is very good. And then... Like I said, the tone changes. And we're introduced to a creature who exists in the garden. Chapter 3 and verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And so, hold on here now for a moment. The Bible says that a snake, a serpent, tempted Eve. But let's be clear that this is the work of, of Satan. This is the devil. Now, Scripture doesn't say how Satan employed the use of a snake. And honestly, that doesn't really matter because of what happens after he does. And so the snake says, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And Eve responds, she says, of course we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, pay attention here, God said you must not eat it or even touch it or you will die. And so there's already a little difference in what Eve recounts 
and what God actually said. God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will surely die. But Eve thinks differently. God didn't say, you'll die immediately. He also didn't say anything about touching the tree. And it might seem like semantics, but this little seed of doubt is how the crafty serpent gets in there. And he causes Eve to question what God said. And so he jumps on it. And he says, you won't die. God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because once you do, you'll be like God. Knowing good and evil. And for Eve, there's something in this temptation that just connects with her and speaks to her and hits her. It's this promised knowledge. Eat it, the serpent says, and you'll know the things that only God knows. It's this, I will know something. There's power, a thirst for that. It's the instant satisfaction that comes from it. She sees the fruit and it was beautiful. Scripture says, and it looks delicious, and she knows it will come with the wisdom only known by God. And so the serpent's words, as he leads her to the tree, and maybe in my mind's eye, climbs up in the tree, the serpent, and says, look, I'm touching the tree. Did God really say that? Look how good this looks. And his words, eat it, and you'll be like God, echoes in her ears as she picks the fruit, and as she eats it. And then in verse 6, then she gives some to her husband who was with her. He's not off the hook here. She gives some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And with that, sin has entered the world through the disobedience of God's command. And humanity puts their own judgment above the divine will of God. And so from that moment on, nothing else will be the same for creation. Verse 7 says, at that moment, the moment they eat the fruit, the moment they taste it, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. In that very moment, Scripture says, Adam and Eve realize, at least in part, what they had done. And now, because the tree contained the knowledge of good and evil, they know what they've done was wrong. And they're gripped by guilt and shame, and they're forced to hide themselves from one another and from God. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now God asks this question here. Not because he doesn't know the answer. This is an opportunity for confession of this sin. 
God already knows. It's an opportunity for confession, which is the appropriate response to sin. But Adam and Eve are already so tainted by sin that they can't even confess. Not to the God who created them, who knows it anyway. And if it wasn't so horribly tragic, it would almost sort of be comical how this plays out. God says, what did you do? And Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. That never happens today. God says, Adam, what did you do? And he's like, it was that woman, the one you gave me. That's his words. It is the woman, the one you gave me, who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And so God turns, and he asks the woman, what have you done? And she says, it was the serpent. It was that snake who deceived me. And she says, that's why I ate it. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. And then God speaks. And he pronounces curses on the creation that he has made. And these are consequences to the actions of sin. And it's important to note here that when the Bible talks about curses, it's not like some sort of mythical or mystical hex or or an enchantment or any of those things. When the Bible presents um, this idea of blessings and curses, blessing is to be found in God's favor and protection. And so for Adam and Eve, the blessing came from living in the garden and being found under God's intimate care and his blessing, his, his favor. He was taken care of. A curse, then, is used in the Bible to represent the removal of God's protection and the removal of God's favor. And so God declares the removal of his favor and protection first from the snake. He says the serpent will continually crawl on his belly, eating dust, you know, as he goes. And further, he pronounces that from that moment on, there'll be this conflict that exists between humanity and the snake. And it's sort of representative of the battle of of good and evil. What God created that was good has been hijacked and tainted by sin. And so they can't exist together. And so it's representative of that. And they'll be locked in this battle. God says, man will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And then God turns to Eve And he says in verse 16, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And so Eve, the mother of humanity, now cursed to endure the pain that we still know, I hear, through childbirth. But it's not just physical pain that God speaks here. The word that God uses to describe or or for pain is reflective not only of physical pain, but of mental anguish, of worry and anxiety. Those of you who've had kids, think of the moments leading up to that. Worry, anxiety, anguish, not knowing what's going on. For those of you reading along with our YouVersion Bible plan, we began in Genesis and we're working our way through. 
And we have already seen this curse lived out in the lives of the men and women, these couples in Genesis. Just think about it. All the women involved here are are worried and anxious about their children or their lack of children. Sarah and Abraham, remember Genesis 16. Lot's daughters, and they've got this whole weird scene that happens there in Genesis 19. Pain, worry, and anguish. Rachel and Jacob, Genesis chapter 30. We see this lived out. Further to that, we see just how distorted the image of God has become in humanity because of sin. What God had created as a perfect union of man and woman is now marred and and will be characterized by the tension that will come from a strained relationship. We see that in Genesis 2 and how some of the men treat their women, their wives. And so God turns to Adam then. And he speaks in verse 17. He said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to snatch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have, to, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Adam, who was formed from the earth, you'll remember, will now share a curse with it. He will suffer as he seeks to grow and to find food. God says you will work for your living until you die and then return to the ground from which you came. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And so with this judgment pronounced, the garden becomes the private and and guarded property of God. And Adam and Eve are banished from it, never to return. And here, here is where the full cost of sin is apparent. It's more than the marital tension that God proclaims would happen. It's more than the physical pain or the anxiety or even the hard work of daily life. Even more than returning to dust. Even more than death. The real consequence here is separation from the presence of God. This truly is the greatest implication of this passage. Sin has come into the world and it has marred that which God created in his image and broken the perfect relationship that had existed between creator and creation. Paul talks about this as sort of now being the new default for humanity. What was created as perfect now is found sinful. He says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. We got that. Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. In Romans 3 and 23, just a little bit before that, he says, For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And this is critical for us 
to understand. And I know that we don't like to talk about sin. I get that. I know it's not a popular message or thought. I know that it's certainly fallen out of fashion to even say the word sometimes from the pulpit, sin, or to think of ourselves as sinners. I get that. Because it's uncomfortable. But God's word is living and active. It acts as a, a double-edged sword and tells us not all the time what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. And I think this is one of those pieces. The truth of Scripture speaks about sin. And so it's important we understand it. We need to know about sin for a lot of reasons, but one of them being it is the source of all the suffering in our world. As a pastor, as a representative of, of Christ in this world, sometimes when people have questions about why things happen as they do, they'll come and they'll talk. And I have had oh, a lot of conversations with people who say, if there's a God, how could he allow this disaster to happen? How could God allow this tragedy to unfold as it has. And my response always is, you're misunderstanding the implications of sin. God's design? That didn't happen. Sin came into the world and corrupted that. And so to ask a question like that, how could God let that happen, is to misunderstand just the deep, far-reaching impact that sin has on the world. How disastrous the implications are. But as bad and as tragic as the terrible implications of sin on the world, what's worse is the broken relationship that sin caused between humanity and God. What we really long for as humanity, as, as people, is to be restored to right relationship with God. We can't always phrase it like that. Some of us don't realize that. But that is the longing that is found in the heart of every man and woman. To be reunited in right relationship with God. And we see that moving forward in our series. There's no biblical character that we will read about who longs to be put back in the Garden of Eden. It's not about being taken care of. It's not about living. It's about relationship. The entirety of the rest of the Old Testament is a story all about people trying to rebuild that broken relationship. All about the interaction between God and humanity, trying to make it right and falling short. Humanity falling short of that. And I take no joy in teaching about sin. But an understanding of sin and sinfulness is necessary. It is essential so that we can be free from it. Ain't right? Yeah, it is. 
Think about it like this. I'm an outdoors guy. I like being in the woods. I like hunting and doing those things. If you're in the woods and you become lost, you don't know you're lost until you know you're lost. <laughs> right? You don't know you need help until you realize you're lost. And you stop and you look around and you go, uh-oh. Well, and that's what the Bible's teaching about sin is all about. It is to cause us to look around and go, uh-oh. I need someone to get me out of here. I need to be rescued. The church language we use, I need to be saved. And that's the hope. That's what God's word reveals. That yeah, because of sin we're lost. But then it continues and tells us how to be saved. And that's the hope. It tells us the good news of who Jesus Christ is. Romans 5. So remember Paul talks about and sets up this stage. He's like, you know what? We're all sinners. This is the default. But then he continues and he says, when we were utterly helpless. That's me and you. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came just at the right time. And died for us sinners. Now most people, he says, would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. You know? He says, you might think about giving your life for someone else if they were just perfect. Maybe you'd think about it. He says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, and since we have been made right, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our relationship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God, has restored that right relationship. And today, this is our opportunity. Through confessing our sin, through choosing to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have the opportunity to bind that which was broken and to restore the blessing of communion with God and right relationship with him. Through Christ, we can be forgiven. We can be saved, made right, fit to live in wonderful and right relationship with our Heavenly Father. You know it. You know this, this verse, for God so loved the world, right? That's what that's all about. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall escape the punishment of sin, be spared the punishment of sin, which is death, eternal death, soul death. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. Remember, that's how we already stand. So God didn't send Jesus to tell us we were sinners. We already were. 
but God sent his son to save the world through him. And so here, in these moments today, in response to God's word, I want to share with you in an opportunity to come before our gracious God in prayer. To seek his forgiveness, to choose to believe in his son, and to rebuild and rebind that which was broken because of sin. We're going to share in a song shortly. We'll hear the tune begin in a little bit. But the words say, are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. And so the response comes, the invitation. Oh, come to the Father. His arms are open wide. Your forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I've been thinking a lot about this this week, particularly these moments. I've been praying about these moments right now, all week, and wondered how we can do that. How can I foster a space? How can we together, corporately, make a space for God to move and for us to respond? And the one thing that God, God kept putting before me and reminding me as I thought about these moments was simply to meet with him in prayer. I believe that here in these moments in response to God's word that he desires for us to come before him in prayer. And so, as we hear the tune... And as we spend these moments, I want to invite you to do that, to pray, to be found before and in the very presence of God who calls the word say, who invites, oh, come. Maybe today God is moving in your heart and you feel the need for forgiveness in your life. If that's you today, I want to encourage you that God says, bring it to me. May your prayer reflect a response that, that is that of a repentant heart. God, I know I have sinned against you. But today, I come seeking your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus died to cover me for this sin. I believe that I need to be rescued and that only you can rescue. And so today, I choose to follow you. and To dedicate my life to living according to your will. Maybe today, in response to God's word, you recognize that sin has, has crept back into your life. What once was washed clean is now needing to be cleaned again. Maybe that right relationship with God, you've let it slip. You've drawn farther apart than your heart desires. And if that's you, may your prayer be for a renewal 
of that commitment and relationship with Christ. Maybe today God is laying something different on your heart. Maybe it's somebody that God is laying on your heart and you want to spend some time praying for them. And you feel it moving, this sort of pit in your stomach that says, I really need to pray for so-and-so. They need to experience who Jesus Christ is. Maybe it's something else. But whatever it is, I just, I'd like for these moments to be dedicated and, and sacred. An opportunity to meet with God. For this place to truly be a place of prayer today. So let there be freedom here for God to move and for us to respond. If you want someone to pray with you, I know we said next week, but we can jump ahead. If you want someone to pray with you, we invite you to, to come, maybe come over here, and I know that there are people here who love you and who will come and pray with you. And I'm trusting that. I believe it. And I know it to be true. Maybe you want to sit where you are and pray. Maybe you want to pray with your spouse or your neighbor or, or to spend some time just dwelling in the presence of God in that way. Whatever it is that God is moving in our hearts in these moments, let there be freedom to respond to that according to his will. These are moments that we set aside today and declare as sacred so that those who seek and those who follow can be found before our Heavenly Father. And so as the music plays... We'll sing in just a little bit, but first, just as the music plays, let's allow God's Spirit to move in our midst as we pray in this space.